Okay, Parsha's Vayera. We are up to the famous Parsha of Avraham sitting at his tent welcoming guests. What I'd like to do is continue what we started for the last couple of weeks, which is learning the commentary of Rav Hirsch, Rav Shimshin Rafal Hirsch, great leader of the Jewish-German community in the late 1800s. Uh, his comments are particularly beautiful uh, on, in the beginning of this week's Parsha. So what I want to do is let's learn the beginning of the Parsha. We're familiar with the story, uh, highlighting some of the things that he's going to highlight, and then we'll focus on uh, three different comments, uh, three different comments that he makes. So here are the Psukim. I'm uh, sharing the screen in front of you. Let us begin. Vayeroilava. Now we have the English anyway. Hashem appeared to Avraham in the plains of Mamre. The first thing that we need to note is really what happened at the end of last week's parsha. At the end of last week's parsha, Avraham Avinu was given the mitzvah of Brismila. He was A, told that he was going to have a son, Yitzchak, with his wife Sarah. He already had a son, Yishmael, but he was told he was going to have a son with Sarah, and his name is going to be uh, Yitzchak. And then he's given the mitzvah, and he's given the mitzvah of Brismila, which he fulfills. Hashem then, following on the heels of his performance of the mitzvah of Brismila, Hashem appears to him in Elonei Mamre. Now, two things are going to jump out at us as we read this story. And again, this is a story that we're familiar with. Number one, as we introduce the story here, Hashem doesn't say anything. There is no words that are immediately said in the beginning of the story because as we know what's going to happen, Avram is going to see these three passerbys, people... Uh, traveling through and he runs to greet them and he offers them a meal and they have some words for him as well. And then Hashem is going to say something to him. So two comments. Chazal understand, as Rashi quotes, since Hashem doesn't appear or say anything, I should say, he appears to Avram but doesn't say anything. And let's just read the first two psukim. Hashem again appeared to Avram in Elonei Mamre. Hu Yoshev Pesach HaOel Chayom Mayom. And Avram is sitting at the entrance of the tent as the day is very hot. Avram lifts up his eyes and he sees. There are three people standing over him. He sees them and he runs to greet them. And then the story continues, which we will get to in a moment. But what happened to Hashem appearing? Like all of a sudden the story gets distracted by these three people when Hashem appeared to him. So Rashi quotes that Hashem came to be to visit the sick. Avraham had, after all, just performed brismila. He was recovering, and Hashem comes to see him and check on how he is doing. What we will see later in the Psukim, after the three people come and Avraham feeds them and they tell him that Sarah is going to have a child, they leave towards Sodom. And at that point, we'll see this inside again in a few moments, Hashem says, I need to tell Avraham what I'm going to do to Sodom, that I'm going to destroy it. And he does. He tells Avraham that it's going to be destroyed. And then that leads to the other famous episode in our parsha, in which, in which Avraham pleads on behalf of the people of Sodom. Maybe there'll be 50 righteous people, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. Save the city. And eventually, of course, it cannot be saved. And it is destroyed. Rav Hirsch takes the approach that on the most basic level, when Hashem appeared to Avram, and we don't see him say anything, what he came to say was the destruction of Sodom, which he eventually does. That is the first thing that Hashem says to Avram next after this Pasuk. It just gets distracted by the episode of Avram welcoming in the guests. But the reason, when Hashem appears to Avram, it is to tell him about the destruction of Sodom, which leads us to understand the three main, thing, three main things which all come to a head 
at this moment in the beginning of our parsha, three distinct things. Number one, Avram just completed the mitzvah of bris milah, and he's recovering. That's number one. Number two, despite his recovery from bris milah, despite the fact that the opening pasuk says it was it was kechom hayom, it was the heat of the day. Avram is not looking to take shelter. He's not looking to find shade. He's not looking to take a day off. He's looking, Yoshev Pesach HaOel. He's sitting at the entrance of his tent, as Rashi described. Where are the people? Hashem tried to make it as hot as possible to give him a day off, but Avram doesn't want a day off. In fact, Rashi uses the language that when Hashem saw that Avram was mitzta'er, he was pained, it bothered him that there was nobody there for him to do his acts of kindness to. So Hashem sends him these three people. But as far as our discussion today, as first points out, three things converge. Number one, again, bris milah. Number two, Avraham is the epitome of the person of kindness that even after having a bris milah, even in the heat of the day recovering from a major surgery, all he wants to do is bring people home into his, into his house and, and be able to entertain them. And number three, what is it that Hashem wants to come and tell him that the city of Sodom has become so corrupt? is so beyond repair that it needs to be destroyed. Those are the three things which come together. Let's read a little bit of the Psukim and then see how Refersh addresses addresses those issues. Again, Pasuk Beis, Vayisoyna Vayar. So Avram lifts up his eyes and he sees the three people coming towards him. Vayaratz Likrasam. He runs to greet them. Mipesach Ha'ol Vayishtochu Artsu. He bows down to them, showing them great respect. Vayomar. And he says to them, Adunoi. There are two ways to read this Pasuk, as is described in Chazal. The first is that the word Adonai, my master, as it's translated in front of you in the English, my lords, is a language of chol. It's mundane. It's not a holy word. It's a, mas- it's a word that means my master. Meaning Avram saw these three people and he ran towards them and he said, he, as he just bowed down to them, which was a sign of respect, and then he addresses them in words and a language of respect and says, my master, if I have found favor, don't leave me. Don't just keep going. Please take a little bit of water. You'll wash your feet. You'll rest up under the tree. And then I'll be able to give you a, a meal of bread. And they say, fine. That's the simple way of reading the Pasuk, that the word Adonai is a chol. It's a mundane word that just means my master, as we find it numerous times throughout Tanakh. There is a second way to read that Pasuk, that that word, which then would not be said out of context, actually means and refers to Hashem. Like the, the same way we say, Baruch Atah, Ado, and then we say, Ado, and then, no, it's, it's a holy word. And it needs to be written with holiness and sanctity because it's not referring to the angels who are he thinks are just men and he's, he's greeting them with my master. That is a capital M, my master. And Hashem and Avram says, Hashem just appeared to him. And Hashem, excuse me, and Avram says, my master, meaning Hashem, wait I need to go address these three guests. And he puts Hashem's conversation with him, who was about to tell him about the destruction of Sodom, and he puts that on ice. He says, I can't deal with this right now. I need to host my three guests. And from there, the Gemara learns 
The act of bringing in guests is even greater than Kabbalah's Pnei HaShchino, than addressing the Shechin itself, because Avram stops the conversation with Hashem in order to go take care of his guests. Those are the two ways of reading that particular puzzle, which again, Refersh will address in a moment. Let's put a pause. What the Sukkim then go on to describe is the great haste with which Avram and his entire family engages in this act of kindness, and then he feeds the angels, and then the angels tell him, where is Sarah? Uh, she's, uh, she's inside, Avram says, and she could hear, and they say next year at this time, Sarah is going to have a son, and she laughs, which again, we spoke about last week, the idea of laughter, something that's so incongruous, so impossible, ludicrous, ridiculous possibilities, is the name of Yitzchak, and that's the essence of the Jewish people. We exist when reality stops, when it's impossible in the normal way of things for us to exist, that's exactly when we begin, and we find that again in the beginning of our parsha. Okay, let's take a look at some of the comments that Rav Hirsch has for us on this idea. Number one, as I said, three things come together. Let's start with two of those three things, and that is the idea that this is particularly... Um, uh, while he's running to do kindness, is contrasted with the destruction of Sodom. That is not by chance, Refersh says, that these two things are put together, that while Avram is sitting at the entrance of his tent, looking, running, trying to figure out a way to do kindness, what is he being told about? The destruction of Sodom. Refersh says, Avram himself doesn't need a warning not to be engaged in the type of behavior that Sodom is involved in. He himself is well aware of what he wants to be and who he is and where the value of kindness and benevolence fit into society. Avram himself is clear. This is a message for us, Refersh writes, that as Avram is beginning his journey as the Av Hamon Goyim, as the father of a multitude of nations, of the father of the Jewish people, it's contrasted his behavior, his constantly looking for guests, even in the face of his own personal pain, even in the face of the difficulties of the heat of the day, contrasting that with Sodom has become so self-centered, so invested in their own pursuit of money and luxury and personal pleasure that they need to be destroyed. It's not by chance that those two come together. In Refersh's language, I always like to read one or two lines of his, uh, it's again, it's a translation, of course, he wrote it in German. It's a message to all his future children and children's children that luxury and plenty should not, meaning the traits of Sodom, luxury and plenty should not bury and destroy the God-serving universal benevolence of the spirit of Avram. That we should never be lost or distracted by, because again, we're about to receive this land and the land is going to be a good land, a land of plenty, a land of milk, flow, a land flowing with milk and honey. We're going to be wealthy in this land, but never allow the wealth and the affluence and the blessings that you have to bury the essence of who we are, which is a God-serving, benevolent people, that we should remain forever in contrast to the principles of Sodom that, that, uh, that are about to be destroyed. Now, not only are those contrasted, but they're contrasted specifically as Avram is recovering from Brismila. And here again, you see Rav Hirsch addressing issues of his days. In his days, all of the rituals were under attack, Jewish rituals. So he says, Brismila was one of the first. 
Brismila, this barbaric act of mutilation of the human body, which has always been a point of contention, dating all the way back to the Greeks who worshipped the human body and felt that it was the essence of perfection. And here we're mutilating that perfection. And even to his own day, Refers writes, where the idea of Brismila had this false claim against the Jews, that it was a sign of isolation and of this chosenness to the degree that we are greater than everyone else and want nothing to do with anyone else. It's us. We don't care. And this is the sign. That's the claim against the Jews that was being made in the late 1800s. So Rav Hirsch says, look, look at what the Torah is doing. The very same contrast in which Avram as a person of kindness is being contrasted with the destruction of Sodom. And what has Avram just gone through? The mitzvah of Brismila. Let anyone who claims that Brismila is to be isolation, is to be somehow making us the other, just the opposite. The flourishing of the people of the Brismila are to become the most humane mortals in all of society. That for us, it's to open up our hearts, open up our homes, open up our hands to sacrifice our time, energy, money, and for whom? Not for members of Avram's family. For whom? For strangers who were certainly not circumcised. All of this is to go together, refers says, that the sign, the Os Bris Kodesh, the sign of servants Tashem that we put in our bodies are not to isolate us from the world, but to make us the most humane, active participants in sharing that kindness with the world. And that's the act that Avram is involved in after his brismila is not an act of self-contemplation, of isolation, of uh, where he was sitting in a base medrash learning. No, the act that Avram engages in after his brismila is sharing that with the world. And that's the specific moment that Hashem comes to speak to him about the destruction of Sodom. And those three things come together. He's in the Elune Mamre. He's in the plains of Mamre. And again, refers here highlights the idea that who, who's Mamre? So the, we discussed last week, the Pasuk says that they're the Baal Bris Avram. Avram had these three colleagues, Er Enor and Er Eshkol and Mamre. And they were Baalei Bris. They were colleagues. And as Rashi points out in our parsha, Avram spoke to him about this mitzvah of brismila. He was concerned that performing this brismila would isolate him, that people would look at him askance, that he wouldn't be able to continue his mission. And Mamre said, do it. If that's what God wants from you, follow him. Don't worry about it. And therefore the Torah highlights, as Refersh points out, that even as he does this act, which will always be looked at with askance from the nations of the world, he still remains of the trusted uh, colleague of Mamre. That's where he is. And he's looking out for the people of the world because that's our mission is to continue that, not to be separated, but to be beacons of light to everyone in the world. Idea number one, Refersh then continues with this, this unbelievable thought based on what we just said. Avram says to the three guests that he has, wait here a minute, I want to feed you. And we have the two different ways of reading the word my master, whether or not he's talking to the three um, guests or whether or not he's talking to Hashem. Either way, Refersh says, what, Rav, what Avram is most involved in is an act of kindness. This, he says, is the essence, the extraordinary, important, and true nature of Jewish prophecy. This is his words. How greatly one is inclined 
to relegate prophecy. I, let me ask it as a question first to sum up, to, to set up what he's about to say. How does a person achieve prophecy? What should they be busy with? What should they be involved with in order to achieve such a, such a state of divine revelation? So the common thought, Rav Hirsch writes, and I think it'd be a pretty common thought today as well, is that in order to become a prophet, one has to, so to speak, leave this world. You have to enter into a state, an emotional state, a spiritual state of isolation, of purity, of, uh, in his language, of exaggerated enthusiasm, of ecstasy. You have to somehow be almost of an imagination and an excited, abnormal condition in order to achieve prophecy. He says how greatly one is inclined to relegate prophecy to that, to a category of exaggerated enthusiasm, to be a state of ecstasy. He says in even Jewish philosophical writings, and here he takes aim at the Hasidim, which was, of course, also in Germany, not so much, but in all of Eastern Europe had spread this idea called, what he says, so-called Hisbodidus. Hisbodidus is the idea, the Hasidish Rebbe's were big into this, of going alone out into a forest, being alone for hours on day to contemplate and to be able to think. And there's a lot of positives in that. But first takes issue, you just see fantastic discussions in Jewish history. He says, that's not how one achieves prophecy, he says. What is Avram busy with? He is running around serving water and meat and cleaning the feet of guests. That's what he's busy with as he achieves this state of Vayero, a love Hashem, as Hashem comes to appear to him in Rav Hirsch's language. True prophecy is not abstract contemplation, but fresh, pulsating, faithful to God, active life that attains proximity to God. That's how you achieve prophecy. Such an amazing thing. And again, the Hasidim would say, no, you need to be alone. You need to be misboided. You need to think and contemplate to achieve this elevated state. Rav Hirsch says, go take care of somebody who's sick. Go find somebody who's down and out and help them. That's how we achieve prophecy. And he brings the Gemara Masech HaShabbos, a Nashchin Ashura. The divine presence does not rest. Lo mitoch atzlos, velo mitoch atzlos. Not from slackness or depression. Velo mitoch schok, not from laughter or kalos rosh or levity. Lo mitoch sichel and vermatelem or, or um, uh, foolishness. Only upon simcha shall mitzvah. Upon the simcha of mitzvah, of being involved in the mitzvah, which he understands the mitzvah of an Avraham Avinu of helping somebody else out is how one achieves prophecy. And here you have Avram saying, as the Gemara says, bringing in guests is even greater than the Kabbalah's Pnei Ashkina. It needs to be alive. It needs to be pulsating with kindness to others. Those acts of engagement, and again, he's putting all three together, in which we have Brismila, his recovery does not stop him, and the destruction of Sodom. Never allow yourself to become like the self-centeredness of Sodom. That's how we become the light unto the nations, and that's how we become a nation of prophets through those particular acts. I want to share another thought as Hashem finally gets to, after he serves his three guests, and they tell him about Sarah. Then, as I mentioned earlier, the Torah then says... Uh, the men got up, 
Vayashkifu al Pnei Sidom. They looked down towards Sidom. And Avram walked off with them to send them away. And Hashem said, and Rafur Shandh says, this is now why he originally appeared to him in the beginning of the parsha, which was then just distracted by the three guests. Hashem says, I can't hide from Avram what I'm about to do. Avram is afterwards going to be, after all, is going to become a goy gadol vatsum, he's going to become a great nation. He's going to become the people that everyone's going to bless themselves by him. And now here's our pasuk ki yidativ that we're going to focus on. I know Hashem says leman asher yitzaves banav yes So he's going to command his children and the followers of his family v'shamru derech Hashem. They are going to always keep and observe the way of Hashem la asos tzedaka umishpat. To do tzedakah, that which is, we'll, we'll loosely translate these now, tzedakah, that which is just, or righteousness, umishpat, and justice, um, in order to bring about for Avram what he has promised him. And therefore Hashem says to Avram, the next Pasuk, listen Avram, Sodom and Amorah, they're, they're terrible, I'm going to destroy them, I need to go check it out myself, but I'm going to destroy them. And Avram then, of course, makes his plea. This phrase... That Avram, why is it that Hashem knows that he needs to tell Avram? Because Avram has the quality of he's going to teach his children to follow after him, to do three things. Shamru derech Hashem. They're going to guard the way of Hashem. To do tzedakah umishpat. This phrase needs to be understood that we are going to do tzedakah umishpat. What's the difference between tzedakah and what's the difference between mishpat? Furthermore, almost always, numerous psukim, over 25 psukim, we find the word mishpat always comes before tzedakah. And here, tzedakah comes first. Why should that be? Let's discuss based on the language of Rav Hirsch. Rav Hirsch says as follows, Mishpat. Mishpat means justice. Mishpat is the idea of what you're allowed to demand from your friend, from a court, from society as a whole. And what that means is if you've been wrong, if money that belongs to you has been illegally taken, someone stole money from you, somebody broke the window of your car, I have a right to demand that they pay me back. That's my money you stole. You broke my property, you have to pay me. That's called mishpat. So that when a judge administers mishpat, he's not increasing, he's not expanding, he's not doing anything beyond putting things back in place. This belonged to person A and somebody took it or somebody broke it. And now you need to pay for that. You're responsible. And we as a society have a right to demand that mishpat should be done because... That's the correct way that things should be. And Mishpat almost always, therefore, so to speak, comes first because that's the baseline, that you're simply putting things back where they belong. That is the idea. Tzedakah is a completely different idea. As Rav Hershon explains it, I'll use his language and then try to, as I understand it, explain what he means. Tzedakah is the idea of benevolence that you have a duty to do. So it's benevolence, but you're required or obligated or expected to do. This would be, for example, in, in our Torah perspective of things, when a poor person comes and sticks out his hand and says, I need help. So how do we view the response that we have of reaching into our pocket and giving him a few dollars? So if Hirsch says, and I don't want to use the word charity, this is the word tzedek, of righteousness. Um, tzedakah is... You are acting benevolent. I don't owe this to you, meaning if I stole from you or if I broke your window, 
I owe this to you. I, I have a duty. I have a right to repay this because it really, it's yours. And we need to fix that which is wrong. When you just stick out, a poor person sticks out their hand, I, I don't owe you anything. I, I didn't take anything of yours. I didn't break anything of yours. Tzedakah is the concept that says, I'm going to be benevolent and Hashem demands it of me to be benevolent to you. So that there are two things happening between man and man. I don't know anything to you. You're a stranger to me. But between myself and God, Hashem says to me, you have a duty to take care of that person. So that when I hand over a few dollars between my relationship with a person who I'm giving it to, it's total benevolence. I don't know you anything. But I know that I have this divine set of eyes looking at me that says, I expect you to do this. That's the concept of tzedakah, in which I act with kindness, which I'm not required between man and man. I don't owe you anything. But I am required because Hashem demands it of me and put in place a system that says, you should and shall do this. Another example, somebody comes to me and asks for a loan. Oh, no, they want to start a new business. They need the help. They want $50,000. So Torah says, no interest. So uh, am I obligated to do that? Assuming I have the ability to. So in, in secular society, whatever you want is a very nice thing to do. The Torah demands it of me to act benevolently. It's a duty that I have. So much so that the poor can expect me to fulfill my obligation. I have a divine obligation to act kindly. It's, such a, it's a fascinating Torah concept, the way Berfersh visualizes it, that I have a divine command to act with benevolence as opposed to mishpat, which is I have on this earth, I have, the, I have a responsibility. A, a judge would say, you owe the money. That's mishpat. That's why almost always mishpat comes first. You have to have mishpat first. Mishpat is just putting things in their place. That's required. You can't have a society without mishpat. There needs to be law that says, you broke this, you owe that, you have to pay, return it, make sure that people have what belongs to them. After mishpat, you can have tzedakah. For example, I can't give somebody a loan of $50,000 if I stole the $50,000. That's not tzedakah. Not my money. I, I, there has to first be a level of mishpat, and then on top of that, we can do above and beyond. We can be kind, which is expected of us from Hashem. That's why mishpat always, almost always comes before tzedakah. One parenthetical note, there are a few psukim which describe Hashem as an ohev tzedakah u mishpat, putting the word tzedakah first, which is why we're very familiar because of the brach and davening, we say melech ohev tzedakah u mishpat. So in davening, we say three times a day, we actually put the word tzedakah first, which why it sounds very familiar to us, tzedakah mishpat. That's because of the one pasuk in which Hashem is described as an ohev tzedakah mishpat. But whenever there are over 25 psukim which describe what Hashem wants from us, and what He wants from us is always mishpat utzedakah. The word mishpat comes first. First you put things in their place, and then you can fulfill tzedakah. Why then do we have here, when Hashem says, Asadom is going to be destroyed, but Avram, I have to tell him, because Avram is going to teach his children to follow tzedakah mishpat. Why here specifically do we have the word tzedakah before the idea of mishpat? So the first writes, because that's exactly what Sodom represented. Sodom was not a lawless place. Sodom actually had a tremendous and complicated series of laws, but it was a law without any element of tzedakah in it, with no level of, of benevolence. 
So, for example, they had a law, no poor people. You weren't allowed to ask for stuff. You weren't allowed to host guests. There were specific law, but that you can make mishpats, you can create law, but if it's a corrupt law because it has no sense of divine kindness, it has no sense of, you can make laws. We know many countries that have existed throughout the history of the world with many laws that were cruel, terrible places. Because if you only have mishpats, so you can make up whatever laws you want. Sedom, for example, in the language of Pirkei Avos, had, had the idea of what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours. There are, there are laws. I keep my stuff, you keep yours, and they never should mix. We don't want them ever to be combined. That's how we're going to find. You keep your things to yours, I'll keep myself to myself, and we don't want to be involved with each other. That's what it means to have mishpat without any form of tzedakah. And therefore, specifically here, when Hashem says, I need to tell Avram because I'm going to destroy Sodom, and he's going to teach his children in the ways of tzedakah u mishpat. It's all going to be based and focus on the concept of tzedakah. We have a halacha, for example, Rav Hirsch says, we have a halacha that says, what if you have a situation of zen nene v'zeh loy chaser? This person is going to benefit, and this person doesn't lose at all. I own something. I have a, 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 plot, of, a, a plot of grass. I own a, a field and it's not being worked. I haven't grown anything on it. I'm not building a house. It's literally just a plot of grass. It's open. It's on the outskirts of town. Eventually, I want to farm it. Eventually, I want to build on it. And, but I, it's nothing. I'm not doing anything with it. It's going to sit there. And somebody comes and, uh, and needs it for something that they could use that will not decrease in any way the value of the land. So the Gemara is a concept that if they come to me to use it and I don't need it and I'm not about to, I wouldn't rent it out anyway and they don't, they just want to use it for free. The Gemara is a concept of kofenoso. We force the owner of the land to allow them to use it, almidas sdom, based on the principle of sdom. It's not going to cost you anything. If you are renting it out and somebody asks for it for free, I've got, no, this is my business. I rent this out. Can't do that. If whatever you want to do on the land is going to ruin the land to some degree, then I have a right to charge you for it because it has an impact. But if you're going to do something on it that will not devalue the land at all, and I'm not using it, and I don't care, and I wasn't going to rent it out anyway, the halacha is I have to let you use it so that I don't become like Sidom. That's what it means to be a, 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 a functioning society based on tzedakah umishpat. Create your laws. Of course, the Torah gives us many laws. A laws based on tzedakah as well. And therefore, all of these ideas come together. Avram, in the beginning of the parsha, is recovering from brismila. That which has been claimed falsely against us as a, an element that's going to isolate and separate and, and, dis, and distinguish us in a way that no one's going to want to have anything to do with us. At that same time, what does Avram do? All he does is he looks out for people that he can help. At that moment that all he's doing is looking out for people that he can help who are not Ba'alei Bris, who are not part of the covenant, strangers, non-Jews, that's when Hashem appears to him because that's how a person achieves prophecy. And what is the prophecy that Hashem tells him at that specific moment? Sodom is the antithesis of everything that you are doing, which is a foundation based on staka, on going above and beyond, but not because it's total, but Hashem demands it of us. We are required, expected, 
to go above and beyond and do that which I don't owe anyone. I don't owe you this. I know, but the Torah says, if I have the ability to help you, I'm going to. And so that's the concept of tzedakah, which is, I will reach into my pocket and give you something that I don't owe you, but that is expected and demanded of me from Hashem, not from you. The poor person can't demand it of me. Hashem can demand it of me and say, I gave you that money to be in charge of and to dispense it as I see fit and I want you to take care of others. That's the concept of tzedakah. And we put tzedakah before mishpat, the opposite of Sidom. The, as, the, as the Mishnah says, someone who says, what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours, that's the mead of Sidom. Keep ourselves separate. I don't want anything to do with you. The tzaddik, the Mishnah concludes, says, what's yours is yours and what's mine is yours. I don't want yourself. You keep yourself for yourself. But I want to give you what's mine. That's the chassid. That's the tzaddik who wants to go above and beyond the mead of Avram Avinu with his bris mila, recovering in the heat of the day, wants nothing else other than to look out for those passing by. That is the gift that we give to all of humankind, says Rav as, as embodied by our forefather, Avram Avinu. Okay, some thoughts from the refreshment of the Parsha. Always a pleasure learning with you. Look forward to learning with you again next week. Have a great day.